House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Al. I'm excited. I might be able to get a chance to use my college degrees today. We'll find out. Finally get to use them? Yeah, because they're on the wall, on a piece of paper. They don't mean anything. Well, that's good. It's good when you practice something you learn. Well, but geez, what that would have been like? Yeah. When was college for you back in the nineteen sixties? Stone knives and bearskins. Yeah. yeah, that's that one. That's been a yeah. Oil lamps. Right. Right. Yeah. Kind of thought so. It seemed like it was a while ago. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. No, it's it's a, it's a few decades ago. Yeah. Okay, 70s. So we'll be nice. 1970s. I started in '79, so I'll give you '70s. So now today. Uh, this is how you get to use your uh, education. So we've got uh, a book called An Assassin in Utopia. Now, this is the true story of a 19th century sex cult and a president's murder. So it sounds like something you'd be involved in. Yeah. So anyway, our guest, the author, Susan Wells, thank you for being here. I'm delighted to be here with you, Al, and Jill. Well, Susan, what drew you to this story itself to where you actually decided to put together a book? Well, when I was in graduate school, uh, getting a, a, my de- graduate degree in history, I read about the Oneida community, and I was absolutely gobsmacked by their practices, which were amazing uh, in the context of Victorian America, because they began in 1848 and they lasted until 1879, 1880. Um, and I had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to write about them, but I thought it would be really interesting if I could find a crime committed by a member of the Oneida community. The problem was that despite their very um, exotic practices, they were considered pillars of the community, and they were very upright citizens, and they never did anything wrong. So it was very frustrating for me, and finally, in 2009, uh, the, the New York Times had just put their archives online, and I thought there was a very small chance that if a crime had been committed in upstate New York, where the Oneida community uh, existed, there was a very small chance that the New York Times would have reported on it. So I literally typed into the search bar, Oneida community crime, and I started getting an avalanche of hits. And it was overwhelming. And when I finally focused in on what these news articles were saying, it was a presidential assassination. And I said to myself, I've got a book. And then I spent the next 12 years researching every thread in this very interesting and very entertaining story, as it turned out. And uh, it kept my attention. And it was a labor of love for 12 years. And it's delightful to see it going out into the world. Let me just ask, what, what surprised you when you, you put all those threads together? So much surprised me. Um, well, first of all, it's the first book to trace the links between the Oneida community, which was an, a utopian free love community in upstate New York, and the, the 1881 assassination of President James Garfield, because the assassin had been a member of this community for six years. But it also traces a lot of crazy and surprising connections between amazing, eccentric, and oftentimes famous people like Horace Greeley and P.T. Barnum who weave into this story. And, of course, I had to research all of that. Um, And there are also many cultural threads that run through this tale of 19th century mayhem and misadventure. So it was um, really 
so incredibly interesting to me as a historian and also a journalist because I love I love researching things I don't know about because I'm constantly surprised and propelled by what I what I discover. So Charles Julius uh, Gateau, um so he's the one that assassinated Garfield. Did did at the time was that like a big deal that he was part of this community when the assassination happened? During his trial, they did bring it up, and um, there was a lot of testimony presented that it was his involvement in the Oneida community that really cultivated his dementia. <laughs> so um, it, the story is linked all the way through, and of course, the head of the Oneida community um, provided testimony, and uh, his roommate in the Oneida community was subpoenaed and was going to appear, but the Oneida community prevented him from coming, and that's a whole other story. What were they considered at the time in, in, in the States? Like, what did, what did people think of that community? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because the time in which the Oneida community arose was an incredibly fertile, uh, a time of experimentation, social experimentation. In a lot of ways, it was like the 1960s in the United States. So basically what happened was that the, the Revolutionary War collapsed all of these institutions and social structures. And so charismatic individuals filled the void, and they came up with new ideas, new ideas about religion, new ideas about social structure. And there were more than... 70 utopian communities created between the Revolutionary War and uh, the, the Civil War. So it was just an, a time of incredible social ferment and fertility. So people were kind of used to these things. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, every man has, this, has a plan for a new community in his pocket. So um, people were open-minded because they didn't have institutions to rely on. And the Oneida community, uh, because it was free love, uh, it, they actually practiced group marriage, was eyebrow raising for sure. But they were also very transparent about it. And they, they published newspapers, which they distributed free of charge to all their subscribers. They published annual reports that they distributed to the governor of New York and Horace Greeley, who was the editor of the New York Tribune. They were not hiding what they were doing, but it was still, it wasn't um, completely accepted in official circles, but everybody kind of wink-wink knew what they were doing. But on, on the other hand, they were incredibly prosperous. They were great business people, and they had thriving, uh, thriving enterprises. They made silk thread, they made furniture, they made, they were very famous for their animal traps, and all of this created uh, a, a, a very thriving community that actually employed people in their vicinity and made their neighbors very supportive of what they were doing. Well, how what, what, what was Charles looking for in this community, and how, how did he get connected to it? Charles's father had actually grown up in upstate New York and had known about the Oneida community and was a devotee. So uh, when Charles was, uh, he had moved, he moved to Ann Arbor. His father was living in in Illinois, and uh, Charles moved to Ann Arbor to further his education, but he was failing at it. And in 1860, when he was 19 years old, he applied for membership in the Oneida community. And after a lot of letter writing back and forth, they accepted his application. But it soon became very clear to them that he was an oddball. He was 
very excitable, he had a quick temper, and he would mutter and gesture mysteriously when he was angry. And the women didn't like him either. They started calling him, get out. <laughs> so um, it, he did not have a great experience, but he had such um, a maniacally inflated ego that he believed that he should replace the founder of, and leader of the United Community, and that he should actually be president of the United States. So his his demented psychology was was obvious even then. And then, of course, it just went on to get worse and worse. Did that group, the United group, were, were they together just as sexual premise, or were they religious of any way, sort of like, you know, how the Mormons had a lot multiple marriage, group marriage in a sense, and that. So was there, was there that kind of a front with them or something that they put out there? Absolutely. Um, John Humphrey Noyes, who founded the United Community, pre- represented it as a miniature of, of God's heaven on earth, and that sex in the United Community was a sacrament. It was the highest form of worship. And so there was a lot of training that went into these practices, um, and he believed that it would become a refined skill that would even take its place in the, among the fine arts, ranking above music, painting, and sculpture. I mean, it was, it was sort of the pinnacle of their, their religious belief. But it was, it was a, I guess they called it a primitive Christian society. Uh, but again, it was one of, these very, one of these many blossoming, unique versions of religion that, that, that took root after the revolution. Well, how were women treated in this community? That's a great question. Um, there was a lot of equality. Um, men and women had the same rights. They uh, all participated equally in the community. But John Humphrey Noyes himself believed that women were inferior to men. Um, his comparison of men and women led to changes in their dress also. He believed that women in their long dresses looked like something like a churn, he said. So he wanted them to look more like, uh, like men. And so they cut their long dresses to the knee, and they made uh, what they called pantalettes or pants to wear beneath them, and they also cut their hair, and they bobbed their hair, which, of course, in the 1860s or 40s and 1840s and 50s and 60s was a very unusual thing. Um, the problem was that uh, he made women subservient to men sexually, so it wasn't entirely an equal community in that way. Right, right. Now, but I, I see also it said that the uh, woman got to train the younger men. Yes, they did. <laughs> so, so there's there's advantages. No, I was going for a new birth I'm certificate. So, yeah. <laughs> so how do we um, associate but that community with the assassination other than Charles himself? Was there like some other tie to it as well? There wasn't a direct tie. I really, Charles Gateau is the, is the is the tie that binds the United Commu- the United Community and the assassination of Garfield. But what I've done is I've taken these two stories and I've woven them together, and it's a story about utopias. It's a story about uh, politics. It's a story about newspapers. It's a story about sort of the whole cultural context in the 19th century and how one thing led to another thing and traced it all um, from the Oneida community to the assassination of James Garfield and, and then beyond that. So it's, a, it's, it's an odyssey. 
Well, how did the community reflect the changing American society, say, you know, post-Civil War for sure, but even pre-Civil War? Was it a reflection of the changes or was it causing some changes perhaps just by existing? It was a reflection of this utopian impulse before the Civil War. And in, in fact, it, it was the most successful utopian experiment in American history. It lasted for more than 30 years. And you can't say that about any of the others. They, were, they pretty much were fly-by-nights. But the United Community really had staying power. Um, you know, and after the Civil War, that utopian impulse faded. It, America became more sort of corporatized, and uh, it, it was a di- America entered a different phase of history. But that moment after the Civil War, uh, in the 1870s especially, and then into the early 1880s, the Oneida community began to collapse because the next generation of members didn't have the same passion for the religious motive that the first generation did, and they started to question things. They started to question uh, John Humphrey Noyes' self-proclaimed authority as God's prophet on earth. Um, they, they just didn't buy it anymore. So um, things, things really changed after the Civil War, certainly by the, by the next decade. With, with Charles Coteau, what other things do you know about him or did you find out about him? Like, like was he mentally disturbed? Was he really demented or was there, what do we know about? He was really demented. <laughs> and one, of, one of the interesting things I, I discovered, um, there, other authors had mentioned a link, some other authors had mentioned a link between Coteau and Horace Greeley, who was the editor of the New York Tribune. Well, it turns out that Horace Greeley was an idol of both John Humphrey Noyes and Charles Julius Gateau. Newspapers were sort of a a, a, a startup uh, boom in after the 1830s, and everybody wanted to get into the newspaper business, including Charles Gateau. And he actually went to Horace Greeley uh, to get a job and was very unsuccessful at that. But he wanted to start his own newspaper. He had absolutely no skills. Everybody laughed at him. So he had this kind of megalomaniac ego. Um, but interestingly, uh, Horace Greeley plays, also plays into the story because he ran for president in 1872. And Charles Coteau volunteered on his campaign because he was convinced that if he helped Horace Greeley get elected, President of the United States, he would be rewarded with a job as a foreign minister, basically an ambassador. And that was the same template that he used in Garfield's campaign and the same expectations. And so nobody had ever put all of this together before. And uh, Horace Greeley, of course, is just an incredibly interesting character. Most people just know that he said something like, go, go west, young man. That was all I knew about him. But uh, he's absolutely fascinating, and uh, he sort of pulls the whole story together. Um, so he, Gateau was demented. He had this crazy expectation that he should be a foreign minister and that by writing a speech, you know, he would be rewarded in that way for that. Uh, he actually rewrote the speech he wrote for Horace Greeley as his campaign speech for James Garfield. So it's all very connected. So that's my question. What what did Charles have against Garfield? What did Charles have against Garfield? And he shot him. 
Yes. I mean, I know it was a job situation and all that, so, but I don't know if there's anything more than that with the, with Oneida or Greeley. You know, what's, what do you have against them? At the, at the time that, uh, Gateau assassinated Garfield, there was a rift in the Republican Party. You had, uh, a group of people who were really into patronage. And then you had other people who were into civil service reform and, other, and not into political favors and patronage. Gateau aligned himself with the patronage people, and because Garfield was against them, Gateau believed that Garfield was destroying the Republican Party. And so, yes, he also was disappointed as an office holder, but there was another story that he decided that by assassinating, by removing the president, he would be saving the Republican Party. So I, I trace that political saga in the book as well. It's a little bit complicated, but it's very, very interesting, and it's really fundamental to this story. Well, so what do we know about it? Was he married, Gitto? Like, I know he's in this group that has group marriage or group sex and all this stuff going on, but he, did he have his... Uh, own wife or a wife that he shared and did he have kids or any what kind of family life did he have well he did get married uh around the time of the chicago fire before the chicago fire uh he actually got a a, a law license a, 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 a license to practice law in chicago and he was frequenting the the ymca and the librarian there a woman an english woman named annie bunn was a little bit taken with him, and he started courting her, and he proposed, and they got married. And at first she said there was nothing very strange about him, but as time went on, his behavior became um, very, very weird. And for one thing, he would never pay any bills, and he, but he would always want the best clothing, the best accommodations. But he would, he would make a small down payment, but he would never pay the rest of it. And that just got worse and worse and worse. And then after Horace Greeley lost the uh, 1872 election, uh, Gateau just pretty much foundered in, in his dementia, and she divorced him. So uh, he was kind of at a low point and then became an itinerant preacher for a while, which uh, was a, a strange a strange interlude. He would... He would um, preach to audiences who would just dissolve in laughter at what he was saying. And then when he uh, read about the, the, the 1880 Republican Convention, he decided that he was going to get back into politics, that that was a better option for him than, than preaching. And that began the story of how he assassinated Garfield. That's sure a strange story and stuff, you know. Um, but what, did you, what did you learn about... Um... Gateau himself that you didn't know before? I guess you didn't really know a lot about him before, but was there something that really stuck out that you think people wouldn't understand or know? One of the things that did strike me was that when he uh, was campaigning for Horace Greeley for president and he was married, his wife said that he would stand in front of the, the looking glass in their boarding house room and he would strut back and forth and he would say to her, wouldn't I make a great foreign minister? So that, that that concept of himself as a as an ambassador took root in eighteen seventy-two and it just stuck in his mind. I mean, he also believed that he should be president of the United States. 
And so to see that replayed in 1880 and 1881 under Garfield was really interesting. And I don't know that anybody else has really made that connection. So in your book, you've got like sex and politics and uh, journalism and murder. Going from that time on, was any themes or impact going forward, like from today, that we look back and say, ah, that's that's directly related or at least causally related to what's happening in our country today? Well, interestingly, um, the election of 1876 was weirdly similar to what happened in, on January 6, 2021, it, and also in, in the, the election of 2000. Um, it involved razor-thin vote counting, competing slates of electors, constitutional crisis, rumors of a coup d'etat and another civil war, threatened violence by partisan militias. I mean, and that was on America's 100th birthday. And to read all of that and to understand that this was, this has happened before in American history was really shocking. And I, it hadn't been reported all that much. A, a few, a few writers had, had linked 1876 and, and 2021, but to really dive into the mechanics of what was going on during that election when Rutherford B. Hayes ran against Samuel Tilden. And in the the initial count after election day, Tilden had won the popular vote, and but there were three states that were still in, three very crucial states that were still in play in the South. And, of course, this was during Reconstruction, and there was a lot of fraud. There was a lot of inti racial intimidation and all that stuff going on. So, basically, they did not resolve who won that presidency until March 2nd at 4 in the morning. And the, the term of President Grant, the current president, ended on March 4th. So, there was almost a possibility that America would have no president while they were while they were fighting about who who won that election. So they they managed to avoid that but just by the skin of their teeth and on the floor of Congress they were threatening each other with guns, they almost came to fisticuffs. It was really intense. That you know that is you know there are some a lot of parallels there. And, and yeah and so I want to ask a question on uh, Charles's trial. There wasn't any doubt that he did it. Was there a lot of investigation by the police or the authorities asking why he did it or evidence or things like that? Or they just say, you did it, you're, you know, you're, you're, we're going to hang you? He never denied it. He actually was very proud of it. He also thought that uh, the new president, Chester Arthur, would pardon him because Chester Arthur was in, in the White House now thanks to Charles Coteau's efforts. Um he was he was he was quite proud of it. He was his brother-in-law was his attorney, and he was he was the second attorney. But he was pretty much in charge of his own defense, and he was manic and ludicrous. Um, Harper's described him as a as a monkey, <laughs> let out of a zoo. I mean, it was, he was oh, on display. That's not good. Being called a monkey yeah, in a trial—that's not good. was on display. Um, the, they brought in, obviously, a lot of evidence, and they brought in his association with the Oneida community um, a lot. Um, but he he knew he was going to jail. And, in fact, before he shot Garfield, he visited the Washington, D.C. jail 
to have a look at it to make sure it met his standards, and it did. So he was quite happy to be there. He was getting three meals a day. He had free room and board, um, and he was protected from vigilantes. He was having his photograph taken. He was in the newspapers. You know, this was, in his demented mind, this was actually pretty good, and he expected to be pardoned um, and, and celebrated for what he did, and he expected the Republican Party to honor him for what he did because he saved the party in his own mind. Well, the, did the populace, which are some people said, way to go, Charles, or was, was he, he had celebrity? No, I think it was, it was just the opposite. People were mortified that this had happened. And his supposed allies, the, the, the patronage-loving politicians, absolutely shunned him because they didn't want any association with him because there were rumors that they had put him up to it. So, no, he was, he was completely on his own. You know, you know, you talk about his dementia a lot, and and how it was all, all out there and stuff. Did nobody ever try to get him medical treatment or put him in an asylum or anything like that? Nobody kind of tried to run interference. Yes, they did. Um, uh, he when he was living, he he moved in, back in with his father in Illinois, and then also lived with his sister and brother-in-law, and he threatened her with an axe. And at that point, people were saying, no, he belongs in an asylum. But he, he, he escaped their clutches, and he just got across the state lines, and uh, he, was always, he was always able to evade, uh, evade their, their efforts. At, at the end of the day, um, he, got, he got, you know, of course, he, he killed the president and all that stuff. Now, um, did, did he kind of just keep on going and being public and being kind of a in the limelight, so to speak? Uh, yes, even after his death, which was also a very strange thing to discover. Um, after he was hanged, the Army Medical Museum took his body and they put it in a bone boiler and they uh, prepared his skeleton for uh, storage and possible exhibition at the Army Medical Museum. But they did something very different with his head. They took his head and they literally stuffed it so that it looked his face looked very realistic, like it like he was living, and even the, the, the rope marks were visible. And they put it in a glass jar. And the doctors would occasionally bring it out to alarm their visitors. It was a very strange situation. And then that head in that jar eventually came into the possession of a man named Professor E.M. Worth, who was very much like P.T. Barnum, and took it on tour with something called the Transparent Baby and other curiosities. And then eventually he put it on display in his permanent museum in Indiana. And then eventually the museum burned down and so did Gateau's face. (laughs) So, yes, he had a very public presence. For a very long time, even after he was dead. So that was kind of a draw for people back then? They must have made money or done well with it, otherwise they wouldn't do it. So that was something that people wanted to see? Yes, and P.T. Barnum is also a character who runs through the book. And the the first reason P.T. Barnum appears in the book is that he is actually the best friend of Horace Greeley. And, of course, I couldn't resist telling Barnum's story, but kind of the real story, which is also much more complicated than most people think. But that whole impulse for showmanism and 
relics, you know, morbid or otherwise. That This was something that was in the American DNA in the 19th century. And it, it just plays out in lots of very strange ways throughout the story. Yeah, I guess they used to, they, they used to put like gunfighters that were, Killed too around on on tour as well, right? People can come watch, look at their body. Yeah, this was a time before TV, right? Before the internet, and so the only opportunities people ever had to kind of see these very strange, exotic, and weird and morbid things were to go to a museum or go to a, a show, go to a traveling exhibit, um, and they were very popular. What did Charles Killing? Uh, Garfield, due to the American political scene after his death, how did it change the parties or the elections? Or because we feel it today, certainly because if every time politics change, it changes the next the next generation. Is there anything that happened that was unique or made just changes the way things function? Well, one of the things that happened is it's kind of contradictory. His successor in office was Chester Arthur. Chester Arthur was one of the worst patronage politicians in American history. And, uh, but under his administration, Congress passed the Civil Service Code. So it was, it was a contradiction in a way, but uh, it, was, it was a good thing that happened because patronage and Office-seeking was just a plague on the White House. It was just um, created all kinds of terrible problems and, and kept presidents from actually dealing with real problems because they were so busy trying to hire people who were lined up in front of their offices, and they actually had to interview. The presidents had to interview them. Um, so by setting the civil service code so that um, – Civil servants could not be involved in politics, could not campaign. Under the patronage politicians, they would hire unqualified people who would then be beholden to them and had, would have to contribute money to their campaigns. And it was this political army that they could deploy at will. So, so the changes in the civil service laws uh, happened under Chester Arthur, which was kind of ironic because he was one of the worst offenders. Yeah, it's kind of how it goes. Um, wow. What is it What is it you hope people get out of the book, you know, when you, you've you written this book and put together all this information and stuff? But at the end of the book, what do you hope people take away? I hope they have a new appreciation of how history is not dry. You know, um, the late great historian David McCullough, said that history is human, and it really is. And, and what I tried to bring out was the humanity of all these people and the, the human impulses that led to all of these world-changing events. So not only is history interesting from a, a human perspective, but it's also so surprising. I kept saying to myself as I was writing it, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> there's There's so many moments where I was so stunned by what I was finding and, and the, the, the connections, the, the events, the, the behaviors, the details. Um, so I, I hope people get an appreciation of how, how fun history is also. It's not a dark book. It's a book that really tries to present this 19th century parade 
in a very human, accessible, relatable way. And it's a story. It's a story about a sex cult in upstate New York, and it's a story about a presidential assassination. But it's also really a story about this period of American history that most of us know nothing about. It's not really not taught these years before the Civil War. And uh, it was one of the most fertile, experimental, crazy times in American history. And I hope people really enjoy it. Well, besides taking 12 years of your life, what did, how did this book impact you, the author, the researcher, when you looked at all these people, the human elements of them? Did, what did it do to you? Honestly, it just kept me entertained for 12 years. I had no sense that this was actually going to become a book at the end of the day. But I was so entertained and I was so wrapped up in enjoying the story and the detective work, uh, the treasure hunting, just following all these threads in this incredible 19th century tapestry, which also included spiritualism, which included the history and the rise of newspapers. Um, and, and that I, I was just constantly surprised and energized by what I was finding. And then, of course, there was the task of putting it all together into this woven story. And uh, I'm just so delighted when people read it and find it as entertaining as I did. Was there something that you were looking for that you didn't find that just frustrated you because there was no documents or there, nothing, no written records? Like, where is that? Did it reach a dead end? Well, as a historian, you know, you're always looking for things that have not been stories that have not been told before. And I've, I had a number of breaks there. I was able to access uh, very small newspapers that probably other writers didn't have access to, um, where you had trial reports. For example, um, documenting uh, Gateau's roommate at Oneida, who was, I believe, framed in a crime to keep him from appearing in the federal trial. Um, and so there was there was a lot of detail from a, a, a very small newspaper reporter's interview of him in, in his jail cell that I was able to find. Also, when I went to the Library of Congress, um, I was able to find a document written by Garfield Stewart at the White House, and nobody has ever used this before. And it was a very personal account, very emotional about uh, what happened to him on the day he was shot and afterwards until his death. So there were, there were really delightful discoveries that I was able to make. Whatever happened to the Oneida community anyway? So how did they just break up after this assassination or did they stick together for quite a while? What happened was that by about 1879, John Humphrey Noyes, who kept the, kept the society together basically by his charisma, his control of their sexuality, and also his own, his own sexual charisma. He's, he was in his 60s, and he was in a state of physical decline. And so he began losing control over the community. And also there was a second generation of members um, who were becoming very educated in the 1860s, for example. Um, he sent the boys off to Yale University, and they were becoming doctors and studying Darwin. And when they came back to the community, they really questioned whether noise was, in fact, God's messenger on earth. They, they didn't buy it. Um, they liked kind of the social setup of the community, but they really didn't, they were not convinced about um, the religious motives for it. 
Uh, and that's when the, the community be, got into spiritualism, which is a whole other thing that I talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, how were how were the other religious communities? Were they did they did they accept the Oneidas or do they not? They were really a community unto themselves religiously. I don't think they affiliated with with any other any other religious um, community. Um, but what anyway? What happened was uh, there was. All of a sudden, a lot of conflict in the community, and Noyes ended up leaving and moving to Canada. And he was running it from Canada for a little while, but then everybody began doing exactly what they wanted to do, sexually and otherwise, without his control. And it was kind of bedlam. So he said, well, I'm going to make a new rule. All of you can choose between celibacy or traditional marriage. No more of this group marriage. And he gave a deadline of 10 a.m. on a Wednesday, for example. <laughs> and so for, for a couple of days, they all said their furious goodbyes to each other. And then they made it into a joint stock company um, where each member was given a certain amount of stock in the Oneida Community Limited. Noise was in Niagara Falls, at that, living in Niagara Falls at that point. And eventually they started a spoon manufacturing facility and a chain manufacturing facility uh, in Niagara. And that was the start of the Oneida Silverware Company. And you may have Oneida Silverware in your drawer. I certainly have it in my kitchen. Everything's connected. Everything's connected. (laughs) (laughs) It's a conspiracy. So if you have that, you're, you're in tune with the group. Look at that spoon and remember everything that we've been talking about. Not what you can do with it. He gets, yeah. Well, we didn't get into yeah, those details, yeah. but you know, we could. But no. Um, well, it's really, really been interesting. Now, do you want readers to connect with you on social media? Do you have like that set up, or do you have a website? And where's the book available? The book is going to be released February seventh, which is next Tuesday. It will be should be available everywhere. You can already pre-order online any online booksellers, including Amazon. In fact, Amazon's running a little sale on it. Um, you can certainly connect with me on Facebook, Susan Wells Author, and my website is susanwellsauthor.com. And I would love to hear from people. Well, fantastic! We'll have that up on our website so people can get it with one click. You know, make it easy on them. Well, certainly an interesting story, and it certainly opens our eyes to things that happened in America before. So now the book we're talking about is called An Assassin in Utopia, and the author's been our guest, Susan Wells. Thank you for being here. What a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, All shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.